You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. All right, guys, shake it out. It's survey time. All right, you got to be ready. If we're going to do participation, you got to be ready. All right? So who here loves multitasking? Put your hand up. Half hand, I don't know what to do with. You either love it or you don't. Throw your hand up. All right. Who here hates multitasking or physically cannot? Elena knows I'll be working on something and you can put them down. Uh, Elena knows if I'm working on something, she's like, Justin, stop what you're doing. Look at me with both eyes to listen. Because I know if I'm doing one other thing, like, ah, it's probably not, I'm not there. And some of us really can't do it. But whether you love it, you hate it, whether you think you're pretty good at it or you know you're pretty terrible at it, research is not trending in favor of multitasking. This from 2023 Forbes magazine says this, research also shows that in addition to slowing you down, multitasking lowers your IQ. Uh Uh-oh. I know. Yeah, yeah. Hey, not all surveys are safe here. A study at the University of London, it's the British, it's not us, found that participants who multitask during cognitive tests experienced IQ scores declines that were similar to what they expected they'd been smoking weed or staying up all night. IQ drops of 15 points for multitasking men, shots fired, lowered their scores to average range of an eight-year-old. Hey... Tough look for a lot of people all at once. And whoever wrote this, this, the you know, you don't get to write the title of your article in magazines, your editor does. Listen to this title. Multitasking damages your brain and career, new studies suggest. Someone went to headline school. That, that is a, wow, okay. But here's the deal. Multitasking does get in the way of focusing on the most important things. Amen. Jumbled priorities often lead to not being present, not being present to God, not being present to one another. And maybe even now, your mind is racing about to-do lists. The Sunday scaries are setting in, and it's only 9.52 a.m. Even when the Word of God is preached, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm just trying my best, but, but you're going 100 miles a minute. Even though you're sitting, your mind is still running. And even when we're doing a good thing, we can get caught up just trying to do too much and miss the important things, even the necessary things, just as Martha does, as this rich, beautiful four-verse story unfolds. Verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed them into her house. Now, hospitality is a special thing. Because what hospitality does, what we try to do great hospitality, I think we do a great job, way to go connect team, that hospitality creates environments for connection. Hospitality this evening in Martha's house, though, was likely very chaotic, not glamorous. Why? Because Jesus rolled with at least 20 people with him, but maybe like 100 at this point. And the houses weren't big. This was not a mansion that Martha owned. She wasn't a McMillionaire. There were people all over her house, all in the back, all on the sides, all on the street. People were 
everywhere, but that doesn't matter because true hospitality isn't about impressing people, but offering what you have. See, when we confuse, we often confuse hospitality with entertaining. Entertaining is like it sounds. You hope to have an audience that you then amuse or impress. But impressing can only receive applause from a crowd. It's a great way to gather some fans of you, but it's a terrible way to actually make friends. Because it is impossible to connect with someone that you're trying to impress. You're giving them things to look at instead of someone to relate to. And what is good hospitality? It's just offering what you have. You're doing dinner? Bring someone along. You're going along the way? Ask for a friend. You got some space in your house? Fill it. You got drinks? Offer it. You can plan an invite. That is good. But hospitality also says, just join me wherever or wherever or whenever I am. Hospitality just says, I'm making enough space to not do this alone, to make an environment where we can connect. And for us, Citizens Church, seeking the good of Birmingham often starts with inviting people into the good that you already have. Did you know how lonely everyone is? It's called the true epidemic of America. That we're in the loneliest age ever in the history of our country. And we actually are the solution that God made us as people to connect. What people want the most is you. They might not be able to articulate it, but a friendship is probably what most of your coworkers and your neighbors want the most. Hospitality is a way for friendship, but it's also a great environment to share the gospel. Yet tonight, there's a problem. There's a problem at Martha's house. Mary is sitting, Martha is serving, and Martha has a complaint. Verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. (laughs) Woo, coming in hot. Mary has seized this glorious opportunity. Mary has seen Jesus is in my house. Jesus has sat down. Jesus starts teaching. Boy, I'm going to listen. Martha has begun serving a crowd of minimum 20, but probably more like 25, 30, 40, 50, maybe even 100 folks. And considering this, we're supposed to realize that there's no amount of impromptu serving by one person that's going to pull off dinner. It's going to need guests. It's going to need friends. It's going to need everyone to pull off a dinner for everyone. There's no way this is going to happen. And we get this insight of what Martha's trying to do, this phrase that gets into our heart. It says, Martha was distracted with much serving. And we can sympathize with that, right? I mean, we live in the age of distraction. We live in the age of distraction so much that our economy is now being described as the attention economy. That whenever you're using a service or an app, that doesn't require any money, say Instagram, 
It actually does cost us something. It's running on our attention, hence the attention economy. And the thing is, our attention is very valuable. You might be like, no, it's not. It doesn't cost me anything. But the idea really is you can always make more money, but you have limited time. You have a finite number of days for the rest of your life. And not only is it limited, it's uncertain. It could end at any point. And what is our time except our attention? That's what time is. You're asleep for part of it. The rest of it, your time is blocks of attention, just stacked endlessly. And that's why it's called this attention economy. And it's so valuable because everything is distracting you and everyone wants your attention. Martha is busy with a good thing. She's attempting something that's probably impossible, but what's happening is she is missing the necessary thing. A church service has broken out in her home, and she's still trying to gather up for dinner. Now, notice her questions. She's so distracted by her serving that she seemingly interrupts Jesus mid-sentence. She basically says, God, if you could stop teaching, I have some stuff to tell you. Two questions and a demand. First, do you see me? Notice how it's said in the scriptures, do you care? First words out of her mouth. Lord, do you care? Second question, do you see my sister? First, do you see me? Do you care? Second, look. And third, she's not even waiting for a response. She's all the way to the demand. Tell her to get up. Tell her to help me. Tell her to start serving. Tell her to have some self-awareness. And I think Martha hits a much more profound question that I think everyone in this room is quietly asking, maybe even this week, but definitely in your life, from the stay-at-home mom to the husband feeling unnoticed to the person who's quiet quitting to the person doing bare minimum Mondays, every single human I have ever met is asking in their soul and heart of hearts, do you see me? Do you see me? Does anyone see me? Does anyone care about what I'm doing? It's easy to wonder, does anyone see my suffering? Does anyone see my hard work? Does anyone notice me? And if we start to believe my family doesn't see me, my friends don't really see me, my spouse doesn't really know me, my roommates don't really care about me, they didn't do the dishes, they, that means they must not care about me, we start to hear the answer in our soul a little bit, no, 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 no. And it starts to beat us down. And so what Martha's really asking is her first question is, Jesus, do you care? Do you see me? And I want us to listen so closely. These lies will wrap our hearts like poisonous vines if you let them grow. Listen to Jesus. The God of the universe says this in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus. Matthew 6, 4. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There is nothing in your life secret to him. Nothing. And in fact, God keeps account of it in such a way that he can accurately, proportionately, well reward it. Martha, yes, Jesus sees you. Yes, he cares. Look at Luke 12. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. 
or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on housetops. Even if we tried to run away and hide from the Lord, he still knows not just what happens, but even what happens in our hearts. Luke 16, 15 says, God knows your hearts. God knows us and sees us and he sees all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, the strange, even if no one else does. Jesus isn't an absent parent. Jesus isn't a narcissistic friend who never really listens to you. They only think about what they're gonna say next. That's not Jesus. God's actually present to you. He tells us to pray because he's listening. Our God knows your heart. He knows your mind. He sees every work of your life. And this is important because the lie, no one sees me, the lie, no one cares, it turns us into victims. And few things will rot all of our relationships like cancer, like self-pity. Self-pity is self-righteousness, I deserve better, and anger, man, I want to get them back, just smoldering in our hearts. That's what self-pity feels like. And there are times of legitimate hurt, and that's something to attend to, but often we try to self-medicate and self-care by self-pity. And usually it starts by lashing out in self-righteous judgment of others. See Martha talking about Mary in this very verse. But what self-pity does when it matures, if it grips your heart too long, it becomes a permission slip to behave in just about any way you like. It sounds like this. This sin is fine because X, Y, Z happened. And I don't care how it harms me or anybody else because guess what? Nobody cares about me anyway. That is a visa we swipe to justify any behavior. That we say, if no one cares, then I'm not accountable to anything or anyone or any God. And this thinking works if the universe revolves around us and there is no God. But in fact, the universe revolves around God. He does exist. And better yet than God just existing, God actually sees us. God actually cares. God actually loves us and proves it by the cross of Christ. That he would die for our sins. That he would die for our self-pity leading to self-justification. That he would die for all these things and rise from the death to help us break free. To have to say, even if no one does care in life, even if that is true, God still loves me. And that is not going to change. And when that becomes true, even if hard things have happened, you can say, I have a God who's never leaving or forsaking me. That you have a hope that self-pity doesn't have to be your master. Your heart was made for the furious love of God, not the weak care of your own self-pity. Amen? God wishes to save us from becoming monsters of our own self-pity. I want to introduce you to the worst version of Justin Carl. The worst version of me is when I start thinking no one cares about me. Suddenly, I become selfish. I become self-absorbed. I start keeping score. I start thinking everything that happens is a slight. 
I start thinking that maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't care about anything because if no one cares about me, then God doesn't care about me, then nothing really matters at all. And for me, I have to recognize when it's happening, when I'm journaling and say, Lord, I'm gonna stop myself. I'm gonna ask that my feelings don't drive the wheel of the car. They can be in the passenger seat, but they can't drive the car. Don't lock them in the trunk. They gotta like buckle them up right here. Pay attention to them, but don't let them drive the car. And I have to have a moment where I go to God and say, God, keep me in the realest reality that you love me. And that's more than enough to live an obedient life no matter what else. That is the long story of the Bible faithfulness. You look at every Old Testament character that gets called faithful at the end, all sorts of stuff happens, but they are convinced that God exists and he cares, sees them and loves them. Therefore, they keep moving instead of let their own heart be God. Our culture will cheer you onto the edge and over a cliff saying, follow your heart. And Jesus is saying, I love your heart. Where has self-pity given you a permission slip to stop obeying Jesus? A Jesus that actually loves you. And that's what's real. Our hearts were meant for a care greater than our own self-pity. We were meant for the beautiful mercy of God. Do you notice every single person that comes needy to Jesus leaves satisfied? <sighs> That's God's mercy for you. You come with your hands open with needs on Sunday to CG, to, to God's word, anytime. God's gonna fill your hands. You come full of, of stuff and not really want to receive, you're probably gonna leave empty. But everyone who comes needy leaves full when they come to Jesus. The second question that Martha is asking is, do you see my sister? And what she's really saying there, Jesus, do you see my sister? She's out of place. She's in the wrong position in this gathering. And a tiny phrase here tips us off that something more is going on here. Because it says Mary has taken a place sitting at the Lord's feet. She is physically sitting in front front of Jesus. And that phrase, at the feet, had a deep cultural significance. To be at one's feet meant you were a learner or a disciple. And that word disciple means one who learns, one who learns after a teacher, one who learns specifically after a rabbi. And sadly, in their culture, learning the scriptures from rabbis like this was reserved for men only. They didn't get that from scripture or the Old Testament. It's nowhere to be found. Instead, it just came from their sexist cultural norms. So Jesus simply corrects it. That God and the scriptures are for everyone and always have been since Genesis 1. Men and women are created in the image of God to receive from God. So Jesus says, I'm not taking her portion away. She's sitting here learning from me. I love Mary. But because Martha makes this demand, she's telling Mary, come get up, come serve with me. Hospitality is about connecting with the guest. And you see Martha is so mixed up, she's commanding Jesus around. It's not a great look. But Jesus has an encouragement both for Martha and Mary. This is Jesus, the kind, Jesus, the patient. Look how he even, he even says her name twice. Look at verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, 
Martha. You know, when you say someone's name twice, you're pulling them in a little bit. You're either going to propose or tell them a hard thing. He's kind of doing a bit of both here. (laughs) Not proposing, but he loves her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious. You're just being really anxious right now. And you're troubled by many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus rejects her demand with care and points out the obvious to everyone in the room and everyone in the story that, yes, I see you, Martha. I see you anxious and troubled as you serve. I see you anxious and troubled as you serve. And by contrast of Mary, Jesus invites her to rest and be served. She's not gonna tell Mary to get up. He's by contrast inviting Martha to take a seat. He's not saying you need to go outside. It's not saying you need to be punished. He's saying, actually, there's room right here. The dinner isn't important right now. Her status of being a host, a good host isn't important to be worrying about right now. Jesus is here and Jesus is teaching, which means the important thing is to sit and listen. That's the most important thing. She's invited to stop serving. She's invited to sit down and be served by the teaching of Jesus. Nothing can be more important than the words of God. And Jesus is the most important thing in the universe, which makes him the only necessary thing. Multitasking is not what needs to be done. All of our hurry and worry finds its rest at Jesus's feet. You notice when you're all hurried and worried and you actually accomplish the task, do you find rest at the other end? Or you just kind of bump to the next thing to hurry and worry about? That's why it's not actually about, I don't have enough time or my to-do list is too long. It's all a matter of the heart. God never intended you to be so busy you couldn't sit at Jesus' feet regularly. If you feel too busy to spend any time with God, to make church, to, to, to spend time with other believers around God's word, personally or corporately, then you are busier than God intended for your life to be. And that could be a tough pill. That goes against every American cultural norm, a lot of countries' cultural norms, a lot of cultures' cultural norms. But man, that like, feels like wrong to even say. Can I get an amen? You're like, well, no, like I, I, I'm gonna be busy. I'm, I'm gonna make something of myself. And Jesus is saying, I am the most important thing. You will miss the boat without me. If you wanna go with God, you gotta go with me, not your busyness. Jesus sees Mary and encourages her as well. Mary has chosen the good portion And Jesus won't take that away. And the idea of a good portion appears a half dozen or more times in the Psalms. It's really across the Old Testament. The idea that the Lord is the best portion, that he is the best food. He's the most nutritious possible thing, that the portion is our lot in life. It's this inheritance. It's this true and necessary thing. And in the passage just before this, the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit? inherit eternal life. And Jesus is once again saying, I'm it. I'm the portion. I'm the inheritance. I'm the thing you need. Martha, you're trying to make dinner and dinner serve, baby. He's the main course. This is the thing I need you to feast on is me. Jesus will be explicit. He says, take my body as bread. Take my blood as wine. Feast on me, Martha. Mary's doing it right. 
Jesus is the portion we need. And I did a survey online last week. I, I asked it on social media, and here's what I asked. I asked, what keeps you from spending more time at Jesus's feet? What keeps you from spending more time at Jesus's feet? And I, I really want to thank tons of people in this room responding, other friends responding. It was so interesting. I read every single little comment, and I started to like tally up themes, and almost every single response was some version of lack of prioritization. It came up different words, different ways, but eventually it was lamenting, I struggle with prioritizing it. And so I just took that, you know, it's real feedback and just said, hey, let me just sit and wrestle with this passage and think about how to address this thing. And, and as I see, there's three shifts that got to happen if you're going to feast on Jesus. And they're from this text. First, we must see Jesus as the most important thing in the world. It sounds simple, but blowing past it is the problem. That Jesus is the most important thing in the world. Therefore, time and attention with him is the most important thing we'll ever do. What would be more important? Imagine if there was a pill that you must take every night before you sleep or you die. You have a condition that if you do not take this pill, you will wake up and die in the morning. What would your life be like? You would set alarms. You would put banners and signs over your bed. You'd have your bottle. You'd have a backup bottle. You'd have like two different doctors who know the situation. You'd make sure the supply chain of this pill was solid. You would tell your friends. You would tell your family. It would be the event of your day to take the pill or else I die. And it wouldn't be this thing that, that would get lost or shuffled by any means. Je Jesus must reach life and death importance to find its proper place in your priorities. It's always going to be too low until we see it as that big. You're like, oh, I'm going to move it up the list. It's like Jesus is the list. We write ourselves on the list. And that is the way of those who follow Jesus with their life. Remember, Jesus is the most important thing that happened in the past billion years. He's the most important thing that'll happen in the next billion years. So of course, our moments with him right now is the most precious thing in the entire universe. What could be more important? What could be better? And it looks like this. He has infinite power. And here's the thing. He's not just important. He actually cares about you. He's not just this big, gigantic God. He's a big, gigantic God that cares for you, that loves you, that sees you. And the cross proves it that the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. And it reminds again of Luke 9.25. It kind of echoes here. It says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose himself? There's no other priority that will satisfy like being with our Lord. Therefore, time with him is a necessary thing in a sea of important things. The second shift is this. We must see in comparison Everything else is much less important. If Jesus is this glorious, important thing, everything else be, must be much less important. And take this as like a direct invitation, like a passport from Jesus. He is telling through Martha to us that everything else in life can just matter less. And that feels uncomfortable. You're like, man, like, really? 
Like my money, my family, my home, my health, my well-being, all that can just matter less? Yeah, that this is the most important thing is Jesus. The time with him is the thing. But here's the thing you'll find. The more time you spend with Jesus, you don't become careless about the rest of your life. You actually become very careful then how you may live. You actually then become really careful about loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor yourself. You actually find by putting Jesus way at the top of the mountain of your priorities, everything downstream starts to reprioritize around Jesus's teachings. We don't love the poor because we feel guilty one day over all of our stuff. We love the poor because Jesus tells us. We love our neighbor, our spouse, a stranger, a friend, not because we're good people and get puffed up when we do it. We love our neighbor because Jesus tells us. We don't love our bodies just because we want to be vain and we're depressed. Every year we age a little more. We love our bodies because it's the only body we're got. And Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourself, which means loving yourself in a healthy way is a good thing. Listen, the more you prioritize Jesus, he actually just starts reordering all of your priorities in a way that thrives. Your call is not to just be a monk to go live in a castle and starve and try to find God. Your call is to make Jesus the priority of your life right here in Roebuck or Eastlake or Irondale or Birmingham and to see your life start to rotate around him. And suddenly you're not so anxious about it all because something just matters a lot more than whatever I'm anxious about. The third shift is this. And you're sitting in it right now to just prioritize time around God's word and God's people. As you follow Jesus's life in Luke, I just challenge you, read it end to end. This guy is going to the synagogue, hosting CG, spending, getting alone for time for prayer. It's not the only thing he does, but man, Jesus prioritizes time around God and his word and around God's people. He makes it a huge priority everywhere he goes. And I guarantee you, as we follow Jesus, it's why we set up a church like this, you will grow. You'll grow. Just like anything else. If you spend time working out, you'll get fitter. If you spend time at work and doing your best, hopefully you'll get promoted. Hopefully you'll get some opportunities. But spiritually, Jesus, it's more certain. If you spend more time with him, spend time listening to his word preached, spend time with God's people, you will grow. And that's why we can make it appointments on the calendar, our daily, our weekly, that stuff matters. There's an author I love, an American author named Annie Dillard, because we tend to think about our life very carefully, but she puts it so beautifully. Listen to this. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our life. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our life. How, How else would it be done? What we do with this hour and that one is what we're doing. A schedule defends from chaos and whim. It is a net for catching days. Whew, Annie Dillard. It is scaffolding on which a worker can stand and labor with both hands at sections of time. A schedule is a mock-up of reason and order, willed, faked, and so brought into being. It is peace in a haven set into the wreck of time. 
I feel like life's a wreck of time. What a beautiful phrase. It's just kind of rolling past. Like, my kid's getting bigger. Eloise is in service now. It is a lifeboat on which you find yourself, decades later, still living. That third shift is to own this, that you are in control of how you spend your life. You are. The jobs we choose or don't choose, the ways we live or don't live. There's a radical empowerment just to own. I am in control of how I spend my time in life and where I end up, I want to end up on purpose. That I want to end up in purpose spending a lot of time with the Lord or even prioritizing the Lord first that no one develops a deep spiritual life on accident. It won't happen in a broken world and with broken hearts. But you can do it. When I properly see my need for Jesus, I will happily be at his feet and often with Jesus' people. Because nothing matters more than Jesus. Not my family, not my comfort, not my money, not even my preferences. Not even my preferences of finding the perfect CG or finding the perfect church service or finding that, that stuff doesn't matter so much. But Jesus sure does. You can't multitask this. We must prioritize it. Jesus is the good portion. In fact, he's the portion of your soul. He's the answer to every question. To see Jesus as important as he is, is to simply see everything, including ourselves, as less important. Do you feel the pressure kind of release? We have a pressure cooker at home. It's the best. When you tap that little thing and the pressure shoots out from cooking rice or whatever, the pressure's off to just admit you're not as important as you probably think. And it doesn't mean we think less of ourselves, but we think less about ourselves if we think more about the Lord and his great importance. A lot of times the pressure we feel, it's self-given. It's self-administered. The drug of addicted to busyness and things like that, we're actually the one, we're the dealer. We're we're using it and dealing it. And we're kind of doing it to all of each other, proving how busy or important we are. But when Jesus is first, suddenly it's okay that I'm not as important. Jesus came to serve us before we ever serve him. That's where it starts. There's a place to serve. But it's first being at Jesus's feet. There are many important things of life, but Jesus is the only absolutely necessary thing. 